Hi everyone, I am so excited that today we get to start a brand new journey. We're calling 40 Days Through the New Testament, and it's exactly like it sounds. We're taking 40 days, and we are journeying together through the New Testament, not just on Sundays, but we're asking everybody that wants to, to join us in reading through the entire New Testament, all 27 books of the New Testament in 40 days. Now, why 40 days? Well, first of all, we're here in the summer, and it's a great time to be able to do some reading and maybe instead of picking up, you know, kind of the random novel or whatever at the airport or whatever it is that you're doing this summer, you can get out the Word of God and be able to spend some time working your way through uh, the really the greatest story ever told and its implications. 40 days is a perfect time to do it. Those of you who've been with us when we've done our 90 days campaigns through the whole Bible before, uh, this is slightly easier. Uh, if you want to look at it that way, but it also is one of those things that allows us to really spend some time getting spiritual and muscular as we head toward uh, our eventual future there on Grand Avenue. We only have about six weeks left, we think, until we actually enter the Ritz Theater, and what a great way to spend it by going through the New Testament together. So, what you'll see right now, if you're on something that has a chat bar, you will see a link drop, and right there, you can see a printable version of this plan. We start tomorrow, Matthew 1 to 7, and I hope that you'll join us. It takes you all the way through the Sermon on the Mount, and we'll be off and running every day. We'll read together. You get one Sabbath day. You can either catch up if you missed one before, uh, or if you'd like to, you can just have a day of rest. A lot of people are going to choose Sunday, but whatever day that you think it makes sense, each week we're going to have six daily readings, and I hope that you'll join us. Sermons are going to come from the readings that we've done that week, so I'll preach something, and then you'll read that passage along the way that coming week, starting right now this particular week. Now, I want to begin by introducing you a little bit to the New Testament. Maybe you're not that familiar with uh, the New Testament, but you haven't read the Bible at all before. And if that's the case, let me just give you a brief little primer. Uh, I want to introduce you to the Bible itself. The New Testament is, some people would look at it as the second half. It's really like the second one-third or the last third of the Bible. The Bible should be viewed as a library, not a book. I know it comes often in one book and it looks like it's just one book, but really within the Bible you have 66 books written in many cases by a number of different authors at a number of different times. The, the age span is over thousands of years and they're compiled there in that one spot, all of them inspired by God. The Old Testament, as we refer to it, is that time where before the life of Jesus. Everything that God kind of does in there, the story of how God creates the world all the way up until the birth of Jesus. And then the New Testament, what we're going to be reading through is from the time that Jesus comes to earth uh, through the book of Revelation, which describes, among other things, what will happen at the end of time. So if we were doing 90 days through the Bible, you'd get the beginning of time to the end of time and beyond. And this, we're going to take just the story of Jesus, the greatest story ever told, and begin to work our way through. Now, the New Testament really does involve a whole different type of, you know, a bunch of different types of literature. You have, you have history because it's the true story of Jesus and his first followers. And it's part poetry because some things can only really be said that particular way. It contains biography and it contains a whole bunch of different genres of literature. So as we go through, we want to make sure that we're reading it the way that it ought to be written. So for instance, if, you, if I was writing a love letter to my wife and I said uh, something cheesy like roses are red, violets are blue, da 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 da. Okay, I'm using poetry there to describe it or I might, as in the case of Song of Solomon in the Bible, describe her hair as spun gold, right? It doesn't mean her hair is literally spun gold. It just means it's like that. Or uh, as the deer 
pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God, the psalmist would write, right? That's poetry. It's a way of, of using language in a very powerful way to describe something uh, that is very popular. So as we go, we want to make sure that we're reading everything that we read according to the genre it is, and also we want to do it looking at the New Testament as a whole. And what we're looking at is the story of Jesus and his followers, but the New Testament, out of everything that it is, is an invitation to us, to anybody who reads it, to join in. It's about, it calls us to worship, and it's about calling us to follow Jesus just as those who heard him at the very first did as well. Now, what we're reading in the New Testament isn't just facts. It's really trying to help us get to know Jesus. So if I'm on an airplane and somebody asks me about my father, for instance, I could tell them that he was born in Long Beach, California on August 25th, 1945. I could tell them his name. I could tell them where, uh, what his parents' names were, that he has a beard, that he likes vintage cars and used to love Elvis Presley. Like there's all sorts of things that I could tell them about my father, but they wouldn't really know him. They would know some facts about him. And a lot of people approach the Bible that way, very factually based, like they're reading a book of history only. And as we mentioned, the New Testament is partially history. There are things in there, especially the book of Acts and things that give us really valuable tools about what really took place in the early church. But a lot of it, if you really want to get to know Jesus, you have to spend time with the New Testament. You have to spend time dwelling on what it means. And so we're going to start by reading the first four Gospels. Now, the Gospels are all stories of Jesus, the life of Jesus, but they all give us just a little bit of a different picture. In Mark, for instance, Mark is the shortest Gospel. It's probably the one that was written the first. And in Mark, most people think Peter is a primary source for that. Peter, the apostle, is, is dictating to Mark what he saw and what he thought. Uh, Mark is very quick and it's very short in terms of how many words it has in it. And Jesus is always on the move. It's often saying Jesus immediately did this, or he got up and very quickly did this. Jesus is moving around all the time. So it's got a lot of action. Luke is the only gospel that has a sequel, that being the book of Acts. And in Luke is written to a Greek audience, and he's a physician, and it's got a very orderly kind of method to it. It stars and features the parables, those great teaching stories of Jesus. So you get a little bit of a different turn there. In the Gospel of John, everything's very cosmic and eternal. It begins, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And it's all about how Jesus fulfills this eternal cosmic plan of God. And it has a bunch of new and fresh material because John's the last one that's written. He's there um, trying to fill in the gaps for us. So we get a lot of new stuff in John that we don't get elsewhere. But Matthew, where you're going to start hopefully tomorrow, and where we're going to start today, in our preaching is very different. Some people call it the red letter gospel and Matthew is one of those things that gives us this great picture of Jesus as our teacher, as the rabbi, as this second and better or greater Moses. There's so many different things that are given to us here it's, that's just amazing. Now again you're looking at the single greatest story that's ever been told. If you think about the great stories or books of stories even that fiction writers have come out with since, whether it's everything from uh, the Chronicles of Narnia to the Lord of the Rings trilogy to uh, the Harry Potter series, all of them find their inspiration in the story of Jesus. Now I can remember even, it's hard for people to see how hobbits or uh, sorcerers or whatever, what, whatever that has to do with, with Jesus, but what you're gonna find when you become really familiar with the story of Jesus 
is that there's this wonderful arc to almost any great story that takes its cue from the life of Jesus. That the life of Jesus is the greatest story ever told. And it gives us the best news that we're ever going to hear. It's a story that's unlike any other, and so it beckons us toward it. Now, the story of Jesus, again, is, 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 is so great that people have tried to use hobbits and sorcerers and lions and other things to try and, and give a poetic picture, an adventurous picture of what's going on, try to communicate it to different generations. But there's something about the original. There's something about just that classic, amazing, boiled down story where we're hearing firsthand the words that fall from the lips of God. Those red letters, if you will. Now, we're going to start in Matthew. So here's a quick deal on Matthew. Matthew was written by the Apostle Matthew. And you may remember, those of you who are familiar with uh, Jesus' calling of the Apostles, that he was a tax collector, everybody's favorite person. But he was called to be a follower of Jesus, and so there he went. And he went off and became a true follower of Jesus. Uh, It was the early church's favorite book. It was the one that was read the most often in their liturgy and in their worship services. And I think a big reason for that is because it actually features most teachings, meaning it has the most red letters of any of the Gospels. And so when they wanted to go back and they were struggling to figure out, okay, how do we tie in our our heritage with this new Messiah? How do we, are are they compatible? Um, Which is which? How do I know the difference between my heritage and the gospel and which is greater and all that? Matthew was what helped them kind of find their way through those things. Now, you can see the parallels between Moses and Jesus that are held up in Matthew as a result. So I'll give you a few things. Uh, for instance, in the book of Matthew, there are, some people think there are eight Beatitudes. There's actually ten, the way they're numbered, just like there are ten commandments in the life of Moses. Uh, Jesus is threatened as a baby and has to flee to a place called Egypt. Moses, of course, flees as a baby because he's under threat from Pharaoh and ends up, at least initially, being raised there in Egypt. There are parallels between their teachings. Uh, they both fast for 40 days before they go ahead and in Moses' case, he teaches from the mountain. Jesus teaches from the mountain, Sermon on the Mount. Uh, there are all sorts of little things. Jesus gives these five major, what you would call discourses. That is meant to parallel in some ways the five books of Moses. So there are all these things that are layered, layered, layered on top. You've heard it said this, but I say to you this, right? It's a way of saying that I'm building on perfecting what Moses brought to you at the first. So we're going to read the teachings of Jesus together and begin with this very simple thought. That Jesus is not only master, that he's maestro, if you will. Now people who think that they can build their life uh, on their own, sometimes I think do that because they think that Jesus might have been really a really good guy. But frankly, he might not have been all that smart. So they don't see him in that particular way. But Jesus, if he's anything, has to be, among other things, not just virtuous. He has to be smart. So as we go through this this morning and we take a look at it, and keep in mind that the one that we're studying was the one that left everybody's jaws on the floor when he taught. That he was one who, everything he said, they go, boy, he teaches something completely differently. And every time that we try to build things on our own, we kind of demonstrate the shortcomings of the way that we 
and come at things. I do remember reading a story once of unintended consequences. There were some people uh, over in, in colonial India. There was a British overlord who they had a terrible cobra problem uh, with, with cobras. There are way too many cobras out there, which I guess one is too many for me, but they really thought they had a problem. So he decided that he would give people a cash bounty for any cobra skin. So meaning if you kill a snake, I'll pay you if you kill a snake. Well, as you might expect us being enterprising people, that led to people beginning to farm cobras because they knew that all of a sudden, hey, I can go ahead and just create a whole new world and, and get as many cobras born as I can and I'll get money for every single one. Well, eventually that became a problem and produced more cobras into the society and so they cut off the supply and said, okay, we're not gonna pay you anymore. In which case, guess what? They let all the cobras go and now we had what far more cobras than he had at the very beginning. That's the way that we go about things. We don't intend for things to get out of hand, but we don't know how things work the way that he does. And so Jesus is called in the Gospel of Matthew, he's called teacher. And they have all these questions for him. Teacher, why this? Teacher, what would happen if this happened? And they're genuinely curious and they do the best they can to understand what he's saying and to put that into practice. So Jesus will say at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, that there are people, they build their lives in two spots. One's like a guy who builds a house on rock, another builds it on sand. And the difference about which life is going to last when the storm comes is he who hears the words of God and puts them into practice. Dallas Willard wrote this. He said this about Jesus. He said, he is master only because he's maestro. Jesus is Lord can mean little in practice for anyone who has to hesitate before saying, Jesus is smart. He's not just nice, he's brilliant. He's the smartest man who ever lived. He is now supervising the entire course of world history, Revelation 1.5, while simultaneously preparing the rest of the universe for our future role in it, John 14.2. He always has the best information on everything. Let me say that again. He always has the best information on everything and certainly also on the things that matter most in human life. Jesus is not just a great guy. He's not just a swell buddy. He's brilliant. And if you want to build a life that lasts and one that is built in cohesion with the author of the universe, then we start there. In Colossians 2, 2 and 3, the apostle Paul says that he is writing and he says that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is in Christ, which is in Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now in Jesus, that's where all that is found. Dallas Willard and others will go on to write things like this. He says, our commitment to Jesus can stand on no other foundation than a recognition that he is the one who knows the truth about our lives and our universe. It's not possible to trust Jesus or anyone else in matters where we do not believe him to be competent. We can't pray for his help and rely on his collaboration in dealing with life matters we suspect might defeat his knowledge or abilities. So let's begin by asking, what do we think of Jesus? Do we think he's smart enough? Do we think he's up to speed enough to actually guide us 
Today, I'd like to take a look at one simple but very, very profound teaching of Jesus. You can see it in Matthew chapter 5, verse 5. Be a great one to commit to memory this week. He writes, or says, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Now, meek is not a word we use very often, but it essentially means strength under control. So meekness is not about being feeble. Meekness is not about weakness. It's about strength but it's about strength being under control. So Jesus says, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Some translations will replace it with gentleness. Now, gentleness is a little bit different in the sense that that's a common word that we use all the time, and there are, but there are different words for the two things in the Bible. Meekness seems to be this version of strength that is under control. Gentleness can be somebody who's just not very strong either, but, but light to the touch. Meekness is... Jesus, who has the authority of all of heaven and earth at his disposal, making a decision instead of, of making war on us and on the world, instead choosing to submit himself, to stay under control all the way unto death on the cross. Now, right now, he's ascended and is at the right hand of God. But he makes the choice to, while people are hurling insults at him, making fun of him, crucifying him, not to do what he could do. So while you might read uh, meekness as weakness to some, that's really not what it is. Picture, if you will, Aslan the lion in the Chronicles of Narnia, Lucy the little girl coming up and throwing herself kind of into his mane to cuddle with him. And okay, you have this enormous lion who could take her out at any time he wanted to, but he doesn't want to. So he's there and his strength is reserved for when he needs to, to use it, uh, to defend what is weak. And so there Lucy cuddles with him in that nice moment and those great moments there. Or picture Maximus and Commodus in the movie Gladiator. There's that scene where they're in the arena and Commodus is saying all sorts of awful things about Maximus's family. This is before their big last fight in the arena. And Maximus just turns to him and says, the time for honoring yourself will soon be at an end. And then he turns around and walks away. Strength, he had the, the ability at the time to take his life if he'd wanted to, but he chooses not to. Strength under control. Now, to interpret this, blessed are the meek, uh, for they shall inherit the earth, we need to remember a couple of things. First of all, he's not saying this to an emperor or to the people who really could just pick up the phone and make a phone call and, and get things taken care of. For the most part, this teaching is being delivered to the masses, to the villagers. So these are not people uh, who are sitting around and have a concept of having tons of power at their disposal. He's giving it to them, though, anyway, because... He's saying, you have inside you a power greater than Caesar's. Caesar has power and uses power to oppress the weak. But you have a power inside you, which is the, the ability to keep what strength God has given you under control, to not use the forces at your disposal. You don't have to return evil for evil, for instance. You don't have to fire back or take revenge or do the things that, that the rest of the world does. Blessed are the meek. For they shall inherit the earth. I'll give you an example. It's a little bit trifle. It's a little bit uh, ordinary, everyday stuff. But since we're here in what seems to be part two of the infamous COVID-19 extravaganza, hopefully uh, we don't have to go through another one of those scourges that we know was the great toilet paper run of 2020. I, when this thing first started, I knew that we were in for trouble when I started to notice the shortage of toilet paper there on the um, on the grocery store shelf. So I took it upon myself to try to be smarter than everybody else. So I got on Amazon 
and I found a place where I could order 56 rolls of toilet paper. Now, it told me that it wouldn't get there for a while, but I thought, you know, we probably got enough in the house to get me by until this shows up. So, I have no problem. I've got, you know, my plan. I got a strategic toilet paper plan that I've kind of worked out here in my mind, right? We all needed one of those at that point, at some point during this COVID-19 deal, all right? So, I'm waiting. Okay, month one goes by. They're supposed to be there, but they don't show up. And eventually another month goes by, and then finally there's a ding at the, at the door, and I go, and there's a package, and inside there are 56 rolls of this. Now, do you know what this is? I mean, like, do you know what this is? Now, right now you're going, yeah, it's a roll of toilet paper. This is not a roll of toilet paper. This is a CVS receipt. This is a... Uh, if Tinkerbell needed a roll of toilet paper, she's good. This right here, sisters and brothers, this right here is a roll of toilet paper. This, look at this. I mean, <laughs> look at the difference. It's not even as wide. I mean, if you put them up on each other, you got like a good quarter of an inch of, 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 of toilet paper. So they sent me 56 of these things, which basically is like, I don't know, three of these. I waited two months for these things, man. So, and part of the reason I had to do it was because y'all were stealing the toilet paper. You were taking all the toilet paper, and so the Spivey family didn't have any. So I ended up doing this. Now, at first when I saw it, I'm not gonna lie, I died laughing when we opened the package. It was so funny that uh, I spent a good 30 minutes, in fact, our growth group was meeting uh, at the time that we opened the package, and the, we, we were on Zoom, and our group will remember me holding these up and laughing, okay? so. That was fine until the next day when I realized, okay, I can get by on these CVS receipts for you know a while. But what I'm trying to tell you is that these don't last all that long. They're gone like in, you know, very short order, we'll say. So I go back to the supermarket. You know how much toilet paper is in the supermarket? None. Because of you and others. Okay? Well, guess what? Not everything was gone. Now there was another run on another product there, not Lysol, I'm talking about macaroni and cheese. And, you know, there's always plenty of like Annie's or whatever that organic garbage is that they put next to it, the mac <laughs> and cheese, but it's the, the craft stuff. I mean, the real stuff, okay? There was none, there was none. So that day, I'm, I, I'm, the, the, the anger from the CBS receipt toilet paper incident had sunk in and I go to the store, there's no toilet paper, but I go to the macaroni and cheese aisle and for the first time in about a week or two, they had just dropped off a fresh shipment of Kraft mac and cheese. It was a beautiful thing, beautiful thing. Now, some of you are going, oh, that's no big deal. Well, if you have young kids, it is the biggest of deals. It is the biggest of deals, unless you're talking about cookies or brownies or some sugar item, it is the most valuable non-sugar item in existence. So, I then was faced with a moral problem. Uh, with all of these boxes of macaroni and cheese, there was no limit on how many I could take. Having experienced what I did with the great toilet paper incident, what should I do? Well, what you want to do internally is say, hey, look, everybody else is taking toilet paper. Everybody else is taking mac and cheese. Here's my chance. I may not see another box of macaroni and cheese for weeks. What should I do? Should I take them all? 20 boxes or so? 
I know what you're saying to yourself. You're saying, oh, you shouldn't take any. You should leave them for everybody else. You would not say that. You would not say that. So how many would you take? So I had this little internal wrestling match, and at first I took 10, and I put them in the bag. I said, all right, I'm going to leave 10 for others, right? But I'm going to take 10 because I'm paid my dues in no toilet paper, no Lysol, and everything else, all right? So look, I'm going to be selfish for just a second. I'm taking 10. And then I sat there, and I go, all right, all right, all right, all right. I started to feel guilty. I don't know if it's the Holy Spirit or just, you know, my mom in my head or something like that. And so I took four boxes of that 10 and I put them back. And I went home with six. I went home with six boxes. All right. When you exercise the power at your disposal, you know what you do? You end up with no toilet paper. And if you do, you end up with these. If you do what strength under control looks like is I could take it all, but I'm not going to take it all. And what you find is that God honors that in some mysterious ways, that when we do what we're supposed to do rather than what we could do, then usually, well, I haven't had a problem finding mac and cheese since. Call it a miracle of the kingdom. It just has happened that way. So what I'm suggesting to you is that when you're going about your daily life, whatever it is, okay, I could have, I could have taken them all, could have taken all the boxes, and would have had enough for me or whatever, but it was in my power to do it. But I decided not to. It was the right thing. Now, other times, I haven't done the right thing. But I'm going to suggest this to you, that we live in a world with a lot of loud, angry people. We live in a world with a lot of people who are grabbing for power at every turn, in every workplace, in every school, in every neighborhood. And so when we hear this idea, this ideal from Jesus about Blessed are the meek. If there's something more countercultural than that saying right now, I don't know what it is. How do we become meek? How do we become people who exercise strength under control? I mean, strength out of control will tear things apart. It leads to ruin. Strength under control, well, Jesus says they will inherit the earth. How do I become meek? Well, in biblical terms, you walk with Jesus. You hook yourself to him. To become meek, we have to unload all the things that make us want to strive for power. You have to take all that stuff that makes us want to grab for things, makes us want to take it all, makes us want to just exercise the strength that we have. We have to get rid of that stuff, and then we need to hook ourselves to him. Here's what it says in Matthew chapter 11. You'll read this in two days from now. Matthew 11, 28 to 30. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle, meek. Okay, there's the word there. I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. One more illustration from the life of Jesus for what meekness looks like. He's there on the night of his betrayal. And as we gather around the Lord's table this morning, here's what I, the story I want to leave you with. It's the night of his betrayal, and the people are showing up to take him captive. Peter, his buddy, his apostle, grabs his sword and swings it and cuts off the ear of the high priest's servant. His name is Malchus. Cuts off his ear. And Jesus takes it, puts it back on his head. Here's what he says. He says to Peter, he goes, do you not think that I can call on my father 
and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. So he looks at Peter and he says, first of all, look, don't do that. Those who live by the sword will die by the sword. And he says, don't you think I could take care of this myself if I needed to? What he's saying is, I have the strength, but I'm not going to do that because it, this is what needs to be accomplished in the way it needs to be accomplished. And then he turns to the people who are there to take him captive. And he says, listen, I was, have I, am I here to lead a rebellion? Why that you come to me with clubs and swords? Like, what's with all the weapons? He says, I was in the temple teaching every single day. And you didn't even bother me. He goes, put the clubs away. Put the swords away. And then he goes ahead and he goes with them. Am I leading a rebellion? Am I, I've been sitting in the temple teaching every day and you did nothing. And then he's crucified. He could have called 10,000 angels as the old song goes, but he didn't. Strength under control. Meekness. And he inherited the earth. Everything is under his command. He now sits at the right hand of God. So when he says to me, Tim, strength under control. Whatever I've given to you, submit it to the reign of Jesus. In the name of Jesus, take the stuff that makes you want to grab for power, take it and lay it on him. And then link yourself to him. Take his yoke upon you. So we're yoked together. And his yoke is easy and his burden is light. And if we'll take that yoke upon us, we will learn from him. For he is meek and lowly in heart. And we will find rest to our souls. So right now we're going to take the Lord's Supper. And as we do, we're going to take the bread and the cup, which represents the body and blood of Jesus. And as we do, go back to the garden there when they come to arrest him. And Peter wants to do the violent thing to try and keep Jesus from suffering. And Jesus says, whoa, whoa, whoa. I could do this. I could take care of business myself just fine if I wanted to. But that's not what God wants. And let that image and that story shape the way that we take the Lord's Supper today. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, with bread and cup now, we honor the Lord Jesus. Father, on this next 40-day journey where we're reading through the life of Jesus and his followers, Father, we ask that we would let meekness be formed in us, that the Lord Jesus' spirit would take hold, and that as we read, just as those who first heard him, we would leave amazed at what he teaches. Uh, Father, now we hear the words of Jesus in our ears, blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. And we remember him, Father, and how he modeled that for us. He could have avenged himself in any way that he wanted to, Father, but he didn't. Instead, he laid himself down for us according to your will. Father, may we be those who lay our lives down as you've asked us to. We pray this this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm -hmm.